0: By 1900, there were a few Christians who were perceptive enough to begin to realize that each of these emphases of spiritual awakening was supposed to be added to the last one and added to the one before so that there was a, an accumulation of treasures so that a a denomination that was started in one area would not just continue to emphasize that one thing, but we're supposed to listen to the next one and the next one and accumulate these treasures and learn from past great awakenings so that we are growing to maturity in Christ. We are Uh, taking in these treasures of the New Covenant and accumulating them and gaining greater and greater riches in Christ. God is, in other words, wanting to build things together, not just one after another in serial fashion. And so there were a few who began to realize, well, okay, we've, we've had the missions movement. God is calling us to the great commission to, to take to take counsel from his word about the nations and begin to, to make an effort to reach the nations for Christ. And so uh, usually we look at that as a product of the second great awakening, although the Moravians prior to that, as a result of the great Moravian prayer watch, began to reach out in uh, what we would call missions to African slaves in the, in the Caribbean, but that was a, a root of something that bore fruit in the Second Great Awakening, and so it wasn't until the 1790s that we see that real missions movements born. And by the way, it was William Wilberforce, again, the, the, the man who was dealing with Slavery in the entire British Commonwealth also was on the board of the first missions agency, the Church Missionary Society that was also formed in London at that same time. So these two things very much going together, the call for social righteousness and the call to spread the gospel to every nation. And then the uh, 1857 prayer awakening in which God was calling people to learn how to agree in prayer together and to achieve prayer unity. And so then following that, the baptism with the Holy Spirit as empowerment for witness and service. So those three things are, are going to be put together in the life of One of the greatest leaders, R.A. Torrey. R.A. Torrey was the the head of the Chicago Bible Institute, which after the death of um, Moody, became known as Moody Bible Institute. And he immediately took over in the beginning weeks of the last century. And one of the first things that he did was to begin to pray for a worldwide spiritual awakening. Nothing like that had ever been conceived of before. So Tori was the one who received the uh, calling from God to begin praying towards that. And that is what we're going to see in this next spiritual awakening. It's not going to be just in Wales or just in Azusa uh, in Los Angeles. But now we're going to see a true worldwide spiritual awakening. Torrey was one who believed strongly in the baptism with the Holy Spirit as empowerment for witness and service. And, of course, he believed in prayer, uh, coming together for prayer. And so that was what they did at Chicago Bible Institute, Moody. And finally, in January of 1903, Torrey was led by the Holy Spirit to go on a missions tour. It led him to all kinds of places all over the world. Wales, uh, I believe that his preaching and his calling and his prayer, uh, his anointing gave birth to uh, the, the Welsh revival. But he went to New Zealand, he went to Japan, to Northern India, all kinds of places, Europe, and wherever he went, it seemed as though something broke out all over the world. And Brad Long and I have written about that in our book, Receiving the Power. Well, when the Welsh revival broke out, a group of Welsh Christians, spirit-filled, as a result of that revival, were led to go and become missionaries in North India, almost without any training, without any advanced preparation, just to begin to share the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit in North India in a place called the Cassia Hills. And uh, as well, um, R.A. Torrey preached the gospel to a group uh, called the Naga people. Um, There was also a man named John Hyde who began to feel the calling to pray, a great burden to pray for uh, North India. And then he went there to North India, stirred up more prayer. All of this is reviewed by J. Edwin Orr in his book, Evangelical Awakenings of India. And the result was that in a very short space of time, uh, thousands upon thousands of tribal groups in North India were brought to Christ uh, with almost no preparation. It was a, an unheard of, at least in the mission field at that time, an unheard of outpouring of the Holy Spirit among missions. And these people groups, uh, the Mizo, the Naga, and other people groups, became almost entirely christian almost instantly and so this news got around the world among missions communities everywhere and one of the places where this news went was in pyongyang uh, what we call north korea and there were groups of presbyterian and methodist missionaries that have been laboring there for uh, several years. What was in Korea at that time was primarily shamanism. Shamanism, uh, uh, a, 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 an attempt to manipulate spiritual powers so that you can get what you want. Um, and on top of that, a sort of weak version of Buddhism and then a philosophy of Confucianism which imposed a very strong social order on things, um, a uh, male-dominated social order, uh, very strong on authority structures. Well, when the Presbyterian and Methodist missionaries heard about what God had done in the Holy Spirit, uh, this was like an, an explosion of a missile in their missions communities in Pyongyang. Now let me read to you from the testimony of a Mr. Swollen. We got our eyes opened at Seoul in September 1906 when Dr. Howard Agnew Johnson of New York told us of the revival in the Cassia Hills, India in 1905 and six, where they had baptized 8,200 during the two years. We missionaries returned home to Pyongyang humbled. There were over 20 of us in the Methodist and Presbyterian missions at Pyongyang. We reasoned that since our God was not a respecter of persons, he did not wish to give greater blessings in the Cassia Hills than in Pyongyang, so we decided to pray at the noon hour until greater blessing came. After we had prayed about a month, a brother proposed that we stop the prayer meeting, saying. We have prayed about a month, and nothing unusual has come of it. We are spending a lot of time. I don't think we are justified. Let's go on with our work as usual, and each pray at home as we find it convenient. The proposal seemed plausible. However, the majority decided to continue the prayer meeting, believing that the Lord would not deny Pyongyang what he had granted at Cassia. They decided to give more time to prayer instead of less. With that view, they changed the hour from 12 to 4, and then they were free to pray until supper time if they wished. There was little else than prayer. If anyone had an encouraging item to relate, it was given as they continued in prayer. They prayed about four months. They said that the result was that all forgot about being Methodists and Presbyterians, They only realized that they were all one in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was true church union, and it was brought about on the knees. It would last, and it would glorify the Most High. So this kind of prayer, agreeing in prayer, with a hope of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, began to really take a hold of missions communities and then the Holy Spirit fell in Pyongyang Um, this account is by William Blair and in his book the Korean Pentecost and I'm just going to read this to you because it's it is one of the clearest rawest description of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a group of Christians. Now, this is at Central Presbyterian Church in Pyongyang, where they've been doing a good deal of prayer. At Monday noon, we missionaries met and cried out to to God in earnest. We were bound in spirit and refused to let God go until he blessed us. That night, it was different. Each felt, as he entered the church, that the room was full of God's presence. Not only missionaries, but Koreans testified to the same thing. After a short sermon, Mr. Lee took charge of the meeting and called for prayers. So many began praying that Mr. Lee said, if you want to pray like that, I'll pray. And the whole audience began to pray out loud all together. The effect was indescribable, not confusion but a vast harmony of sound and spirit, a mingling together of souls moved by an irresistible impulse of prayer. The prayer sounded to me like the falling of many waters, an ocean of prayer beating against God's throne. It was not many, but one born of one spirit lifted to one Father above. Just as on the day of Pentecost, they were all together in one place of one accord praying. "'And suddenly there came from heaven "'the sound as the rushing of a mighty wind, "'and it filled all the house where they were sitting. "'God is not always in the whirlwind,' he goes on. "'Neither does he always speak in a still, small voice. "'He came to us in Pyongyang that night "'with the sound of weeping.' "'As the prayer continued, a spirit of heaviness "'and sorrow for sin came down upon the audience.' Over on one side, someone began to weep. In a moment, the whole audience was weeping. Man after man would rise, confess his sins, break down and weep and throw himself to the floor and beat the floor with his fists in perfect agony of conviction. My own cook tried to make a confession, broke down in the midst of it and cried to me across the room. Pastor, tell me, is there any hope for me? Can I be forgiven? And then he threw himself to the floor and wept and wept, almost screamed in agony. Sometimes after a confession, the whole audience would break out in audible prayer. And the effect of that audience of hundreds of men praying together in audible prayer was something indescribable. Again, after another confession, they would break out in uncontrollable weeping. And we would all weep. We couldn't help it. And so the meeting went on until 2 o'clock a.m., with confession and weeping and praying." That was the testimony of Mr. Lee. And Mr. Blair goes on. Only a few of the missionaries were present on that Monday night. On Tuesday morning, Mr. Lee and I went from house to house, telling the good news to all who were absent and to our Methodist friends in the city. That noon, the whole foreign community assembled to render thanks to God. I wish to describe the Tuesday night meeting in my own language because a part of what happened concerned me personally. We were aware that bad feeling existed between several of our church officers, especially between a Mr. Kong and a Mr. Kim. Mr. Kong confessed his hatred for Mr. Kim on Monday night, but Mr. Kim was silent. At our noon prayer meeting on Tuesday, several of us agreed to pray for Mr. Kim. I was especially interested because Mr. Kong was my assistant in the North Pyongyang Church and Mr. Kim, an elder in the Central Church and one of the officers in the Pyongyang Men's Association of which I was chairman. As the meeting progressed, I could see Mr. Kim sitting with the elders behind the pulpit with his head down, bowing where I sat. I asked God to help him and looking up, saw him coming forward. Holding to the pulpit, he made his confession. I have been guilty of fighting against God. An elder in the church, I have been guilty of hating not only Kang Yu Moon, but Pang Mok Sa. Pang Mok Sa is my Korean name. I never had a greater surprise in my life to think that this man, my associate in the men's association, had been hating me without my knowing it. It seems that I had said something to him one day in the hurry of managing a school field day exercise which gave offense and he had not been able to forgive me. Turning to me, he said, "'Can you forgive me? Can you pray for me?' I stood up and began to pray. "'Apage, apage, Father, Father,' and got no further. It seemed as if the roof was lifted from the building and the Spirit of God came down from heaven in a mighty avalanche of power upon us. I fell at Kim's side and wept and prayed as I had never prayed before. My last glimpse of the audience is photographed indelibly on my brain. Some threw themselves full length upon the floor. Hundreds stood with arms outstretched toward heaven. Every man forgot every other. Each was face to face with God. I can hear yet that fearful sound of hundreds of men pleading with God for life and for mercy. The cry went out over the city until the heathen were in consternation. As soon as we were able, we missionaries gathered at the platform and consulted, what shall we do? If we let them go on like this, some will go crazy. Yet we dared not interfere. We had prayed to God for an outpouring of His Spirit upon the people, and it had come. Separating, we went down and tried to comfort the most distressed, pulling the agonized man to the floor and saying, never mind, brother, if you have sinned, God will forgive you. Wait, and an opportunity will be given to speak. Finally, Mr. Lee started a hymn and quiet was restored during the singing. Then began a meeting, the like of which I have never seen before nor wish to see again, unless it got in God's sight it is absolutely necessary. Every sin a human being can commit was publicly confessed that night, pale and trembling with emotion, in agony of mind and body, guilty souls standing in the white light of that judgment, saw themselves as God saw them. Their sins rose up in all their vileness till shame and grief and self-loathing took complete possession. Pride was driven out, the face of men forgotten. Looking up to heaven to Jesus whom they had betrayed, they smote themselves and cried out with bitter wailing, Lord, Lord, cast us not away forever. Everything else was forgotten, nothing else mattered. The scorn of men, the penalty of the law, even death itself, seemed of small consequence if only God forgave. We may have our theories of the desirability or undesirability of public confession of sin. I have had mine, but I know now that when the Spirit of God falls upon guilty souls, there will be confession, and no power on earth can stop it. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap, and he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver."